Would you take your Bible and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 tonight? And, uh, man, I, Debbie and I have just loved our time here. I, I knew that we would enjoy it. We've been, had the privilege of being here before, obviously, and, and what a blessing it was and is. And, um, just, I, I started writing down things to be thankful for. And Pastor stole a lot of them. Thankful for the food, for the Varnes family. Uh, listen, I know what it's like to cook for missionaries. Well, let me rephrase. I don't know what it's like to cook for missionaries. I know what it's like to eat for missionaries. And, uh, just a, a huge amount of work and effort. And thank you so much for that. And, uh, I'm allergic to peanut butter. And the first three days, that's the only kind of dessert we had. And people are like, oh, he's really committed to his diet. No, I just didn't want to die. And, uh, and so she heard that and we get, we got some oatmeal thing today. I'm not allergic to it, but let me tell you, I almost went into diabetic coma and, uh, then I had to struggle with lust cause I wanted to eat the whole plate. I mean, I was looking at little kids who had them ready to smack them. And so those things were awesome. Those were, those are great. Um, thanks for the eyeglasses. Those are awesome. And, and, uh, Calvi, I take every bad thing I've said about baseball back. After being with you, I really don't, but I wanted you to feel good. Um, no, I really do. I'm kidding. I got to go over and see the, uh, the, some of the stuff. And, and in California, this is how California works, just so you know. You have three big cities in California. L.A., obviously, Los Angeles is the largest city. And then the second largest city is San Diego. And then the third largest is San Francisco. And there's an agreement in most of California that we all hate L.A., now, if you're not from California, you wouldn't know that. But like, if you root for the Dodgers in, in our city, like we don't let you vote at our church. We won't let you get baptized. We won't even let you join. We will let you tithe though, but that's it. Your dumb money is okay with Jesus, but that's about it. In our new members class, we go through this very carefully. Um, and we, we, <laughs> We, we were okay with giant fans and they won, stole our, stole our manager, Bruce Bochy, won all those titles and all that stuff. So we're okay with giant fans and our church has a lot of giants fans. So I took a picture with Kelby and let me tell you, I'll go back and I'll have a newfound respect in people's eyes. They don't care that I can preach the Bible, but you know, a former giant player, oh, pastor, that's amazing. You really must know Jesus. It's not really Jesus, but okay, I'll take anything I can get any way I can get it. And so thanks for the glasses. Uh, uh, Pastor, uh, just the organization has been great. Uh, God's blessed, and I've had the privilege of maybe preaching, not maybe, but of preaching several mission conferences. And and it uh, seems like right now in my ministry, that's probably the thing I do most out at other places. And um, man, it's... It, you ought to be thankful for a pastor and a pastoral team. And I know there's been some generations of pastors, I'm sure, that have helped lead to this. But where, where organization and thought have gone into making it what it is. Uh, some of these people think, oh, that just happens. No, I've been to some places where they thought it just happens. And let me tell you, am I right, preacher? It don't just happen. It does not just happen. I mean, it's like a bad fast food restaurant. There's food everywhere. And then they're like, hey, we'll charge you full price. But anyway... Um, the, the music has been awesome. I, I don't know what that song was tonight, and there's not a schedule of service for me to pilfer tonight, but the, I, I haven't heard ain't that much in a church service other than my own preaching. I love that. I love that. That is awesome. You, we've got some grammar Nazis in our church, and literally, I hope they're watching right now, and they will suffer. Literally, we don't believe in purgatory or penance, but for those guys, they're going to be in the southeast of heaven forever, just so they have to deal with that, how much grief they've given their pastor. You know, pastor, you didn't conjugate your verbs correctly. Really? Yeah. Well, I don't even know what that means, stupid. So there. <laughs> So anyway, that was awesome, ladies. I don't know where you're all at, but thank you for that song and, and the band. And I just, my brother on the guitar smiled in church today. <laughs> Tell me, where are you at? Where are you? Where, where are you at? But would you stand? Would you stand? We have new friends in heaven. Give him a big hand for smiling while he played. It was great. Like, he smiled like, how great is our God? I was like, oh, that's awesome. He just smiled. It's all over Twitter. Yeah, it's trending. Thanks. I wrote this down too. Thanks for laughing. I'm just me anywhere that I go because I tried to be somebody else and I liked me less than I normally do. And it just didn't work well. And, And your participation, and let me tell you, a happy church is a happening church. 
You can be happy without Jesus, but if you have Jesus, you will be happy and joyful. And you ever preach in the upper Midwest or the Northeast? Let me tell you, oh my word, you take a dude from California up there, it doesn't go well. And so, um, yeah. Okay, I got to tell you this story, all right? So I see on Twitter, like three weeks ago, a debate about what's the best kind of Bible. Now, in California, we don't worry about the kind of Bibles that you have. We just hope people have a Bible. So, like, if it's a paper Bible, if it's a paper made out of that newspaper stuff that, you you know, you give to people when they come into church, whatever, we don't, it just wasn't ever an issue for us. And then I saw that there were, like, different quality of Bibles. That just wasn't a deal for me ever. And I, I stopped, Pastor, no lie. I stopped right then, and I thought, Lord, I've been preaching for 30 years. I, and I've got good Bibles, nice Bibles. I thought... I'd like to have a really nice Bible. But this was my phrase. I said, I'm not telling a single person about it. I'll either steal one from a pastor or you'll provide. And I prayed and I prayed probably two or three times about that. And tonight, supposedly, I haven't seen it yet. But God provided. You say, oh, is that a big deal? That made me weep. That's a big deal to me. I mean, I could afford a new Bible. Our church pays Debbie well. It doesn't matter. Uh, financially, I could take care of that. But I just asked the Lord, and I literally said, Lord, I'm not going to do anything about it. I had no idea that was coming. No concept. Tanner and I were talking about Bibles, and he's schooling me on the best leather and everything like that. I had to teach him about basketball, but he's teaching me about Bibles. And it was, uh, man, what an answer to prayer. We serve a good God. How great is our God? Just in the little things. You say, well, I don't think that should matter to you. And I don't, you're not saying that. I'm talking about for the people online. And um, I'm just, it might not matter, but boy, that mattered to me. That was, that was awesome. And, and Debbie and I have enjoyed every second with you guys. And I know the missionaries echo that. We've just had a great, great time. Brother Robbie and I were talking last night. And whenever I talk to missionaries who've been around for a while, I always ask them, tell me your worst experience and your best experience. And he's a good politician because he goes, I don't really have any bad experiences. I'm like, oh, let me tell you mine. So, and I said, tell me your best. He goes, this one's right up there. This is great. And this is great. It's been awesome. It's been awesome. I love every second of it. I'll say this and then we'll jump into second Corinthians. But um, I've really enjoyed working out with your pastor and Tanner. That's been great. Let me, let me encourage you to give them more time to work out. They could use it. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) They work out at a place called Rapid Fit. It's taken longer than the name. That's all I'm going to say right there. It's taken longer than the name. It's progressive fit. My joke the other night, by the way, some of you are going to get in that, like, oh, it's not rapid. No, no, they just walk in. Tanner walked in the other day and walked out and said, that was a good workout. It's rapid. I was like, oh, no, we got to do something here, brother. Uh, the, the joke the other night about Bible college and all of that and Pharisees that Tanner told me to tell. I'm thankful that that's hit online and I'm starting to get text messages from people. So that's a blessing. Who's ever in your multimedia ministry, they have an edit button for a reason, guys. You could have taken that one out. Uh, but uh, anyway, that'll be, that'll be awesome. Second Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. How many of you ever been to New York City? Where they make all the salsa? New York City. You got to be old to get that joke <laughs> or older. But if you've ever been to New York City and, and walked around Times Square or the Broadway district, my, Debbie loves New York City. I love New York City. She likes it a lot more than I do. She says, when we get old, if we don't move to Cambodia, we should move to New York City and start a church, to, to which I encourage her to find a new husband. Um, <laughs> and then she told me that wouldn't be a problem, so... <laughs> I kind of pulled back off that joke a little bit. But if you're walking around the Broadway District or Central Park, uh, if you've ever been there, uh, you might have seen uh, some guys who try to get you to play what's called the shell game. 
you don't know what the shell game is, it's basically they take like either three halves of a walnut or, or something small like that. And they'll put up basically a, a little ball or maybe even a, a frozen pea in it, frozen pea type thing in it. And, and they'll move it around. You've seen it maybe at sporting events. And then they'll ask you, is it in one, two or three? And, and you'll say, and when you first start the shell game, uh, you always pick it. You never miss when you start the shell game. You play it and, and they, they really encourage you. They motivate you. And, and it's funny to watch. And so we watched a guy. We were there. We were on 8th Avenue one day and, uh, right by Times Square or 8th Street, I should say. And, and we're, we're watching this guy do the shell game and I'm just in the crowd and he looks at me and he goes, Hey, you want to play the shell game? And I said, uh, no, no, I don't. He goes, why? I said, well, there's, there's two reasons. We were having a good time and laughing and everything. I said, number one, once it matters, you'll start cheating. He goes, I don't cheat. I said, come on. You're the first shell game guy that doesn't cheat. If you don't cheat, of course you're going to cheat. It's okay. It's part of the game. I get it. It's just I'm not going to do it. I said, number two, I don't gamble. I'm a Baptist pastor. At which time, all the people around me, when they heard Baptist pastor scattered, so it was just me and the guy. He looked at me and he said, I promise, I promise, I won't change anything. I won't change anything. And I looked right at him and I said, I don't believe that. We laughed, gave each other a hug, and he walked away to rip off some unsuspecting, you know, tourist from Nebraska. <laughs> Today I want to preach here tonight. I want to finish out this conference with a message entitled this. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that? We've been talking a lot about faith, promise, missions, giving. And if truth is told, sometimes we can give to faith, promise, missions without really believing in the biblical principles of faith, promise, missions. Doesn't make you bad or wrong or anything like that. Sometimes we, we just don't let the word of God sink into our heart like the word of God is supposed to sink into his heart. And I would submit to you tonight that we can take God at his word in this passage. I would submit to you that this is a a very formative passage in the philosophy of missions giving and missions living. Now, let's remember the context from this morning, this morning's message, that Paul is talking in this text about a special offering that is being taken for the church at Jerusalem for the indigent or needy church members that are there. This is not specifically talking about missionaries going to a foreign field or even local missionaries, but we can apply that without taking it out of context, nor are we abusing the concept of the faith promise gift that they are giving or the gift that they are giving. I just want to be clear there. And I appreciate your pastor, by the way, being very, very diligent to to be clear. I think people give just as much when they understand exactly what the Bible is saying. And pastors don't have to try to manipulate the text. You ought to be thankful for a pastor who isn't trying to manipulate to force a result, but would rather preach, thus saith the Lord, and let the Holy Spirit work on your heart. And by the way, God bless a church giving over $340,000 this year to missions. And I'm excited about the announcement at the end of the service, what we'll be giving. And then it's awesome. I thank the Lord for that. It's, it's fantastic. Well, we come to verses one and two and the Bible says this first touching the ministry to the saints. Again, the saints at Jerusalem, it is superfluous for me to write to you for, I know the forwardness of your mind for which I boast of you to them of Macedonia, that a K I was ready a year ago and your zeal hath provoked very many. Now, Paul is talking to the church at Corinth about the church at Corinth, and he is encouraging them. And we see firstly, a church with a heart for giving. Again, he says, it's touching the ministry to the saints. It's superfluous or, or almost, we might say it this way, unnecessary or over and above, it's superfluous for me to write to you. It's over and above, for I know the forwardness or the willingness would be a word, how that word would be defined. I know the willingness of your mind. You see, the church at Corinth was given an example in chapter 8 by the churches at Macedonia, right? We looked at that this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses really 1 to 10 we looked at, where, where Paul is exhorting the church at Corinth to give. 
and using the testimony of the church at Macedonia, the poor believers in modern day southern Turkey that, that had very, very little. Paul is using that. Paul is helping them. And then we come to chapter 9 and Paul is exhorting the church at Corinth and, and letting them know, I know you have a desire to give. As a matter of fact, Paul goes on to say, I have boasted to you, or of you rather, to them of Macedonia, that Achaia, Achaia is just another word for Corinth, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal hath provoked very many. The church at Corinth was an example to the church at Macedonia. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, this exemplary church is here. I know the forwardness. I know the willingness of your mind. I know that you had a desire to give. Something happened a year ago. They were ready to give. Paul couldn't take the offering as was. So they didn't take the offering as they thought it would happen. There was maybe an administrative difficulty or a travel difficulty. We're not sure what the reason is. The scripture doesn't give clarity on that. But what we understand with certainty is that this church at Corinth had a, had a desire to give one year ago. And Paul had used their zeal, their willingness, their forward to encourage the churches of Macedonia. Can I stop and say just this as an aside for a second, that we ought to be encouraged to live for God based on the strengths that he gives other people and the blessings he gives other churches. Let me say that again. We ought to be encouraged in our walk with God by how he blesses other people and by their strengths. Let me illustrate to you this way. You come to our church, we have great music. You might not like the style, but you probably would. It's pretty similar without the twang. Love the twang, though. I love the twang. I vote for the twang. But when you have a naval officer who, you know, is Norwegian and Filipino, which is really a confusing mix, um, and, and he's a big grammar guy, sometimes we have to encourage him a little bit. But I've learned some stuff about the music, which I would argue is a strength of Fellowship Baptist Church and a blessing. And I've learned some stuff that I'm literally going to take back home and I'm going to teach our church, or I'm I'm not going to teach our church. We'll have our music. I teach our church. But our church will be edified by the ministry and the strength of Fellowship Baptist Church. Not, not just that. There are several other things that I'll be taking back because I want to take the strengths of this ministry and help our ministry do better for the cause of Jesus Christ. And the same is true in the Christian life. I, I, I love your pastor's ability to communicate the word of God. Uh, and when I listen to him preach, which is not unfamiliar for me, and I'll listen to him and it, it helps me in my communication. And I'll talk to him and Pastor David and Pastor David starts using these college words and I have to pull out my college dictionary and I'm like, oh yeah, I remember what that one meant. Oh yeah, I remember what that one meant. And he's like, you don't remember those words? No, I work with real people now. And... Um, <laughs> My goal today was to make you laugh. That was the only joke I had, and it didn't work. So there you go. Now I'm totally messing with you. But uh, I want to take the strengths that somebody has, and I want to use it in my own life to develop more for the cause of Jesus Christ. If God can help their marriage to be strong, then God can help my marriage to be strong. He's no respecter of persons. I might not have the same strength as XYZ person. I might not have the same abilities as XYZ person. But God can use me, or use them rather, to help me in the furtherance of my development and my walk for the cause of Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul's doing here. Church at Corinth, I'm going to exhort you uh, by giving testimony of the church at Macedonia. Macedonia, I'm going to exhort you by giving testimony of the church at Corinth. We're going to grow together. No one person, listen to me, no one person or no one church has it all figured out. We are all on a daily journey to be more like Christ. And so Paul is saying, your zeal has provoked them. But verse number three, there was a potential for some discouragement. Yet have I sent the brethren, Paul sent a team to Corinth, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this behalf, that as I said, you may be ready. 
Lest haply, if they of Macedonia come with me and find you unprepared, we, that we say not ye, should be ashamed in this same confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren that they would go before unto you and make up beforehand your bounty, whereof ye had noticed before that the same might be ready as a matter of bounty and not as a matter of covetousness. Let's unpack this phrase for a second, or this paragraph for a second. In order to prevent problems, Paul is sending a delegation to Corinth led by Titus. And Paul says in verse number three, we boasted of you. Boasted is, is not for foolish bragging like maybe sometimes it is used in scripture. But it really just means here an encouragement of hope. We, we were encouraging the people of Macedonia and probably the people of Corinth. But we know without a doubt, or, or Jerusalem. But we know without a doubt the people of Macedonia. We were encouraging them that the people of Corinth were ready. And we don't want, verse number three, we don't want our boasting of you or our encouragement of hope in you to be empty, to be vain, to be worthless. If members of the church of Macedonia had come from Macedonia to Corinth and the church at Corinth wasn't ready to give, then it would be a discouragement to the people of Macedonia. Remember, Corinth was a very, very wealthy church. Macedonia was a very, very poor church. And if the people from Macedonia show up at Corinth and the people at Corinth have not already given and aren't prepared to give, Paul was fearful, and I would submit to you rightly so, that the people of Macedonia would be very, very discouraged. Because they would be thinking, this is how my mind works, can't say for sure, but I would assume they would think something like this. We're really poor. We have nothing. We've been practicing giving, sacrificial giving for days, weeks, months, or, or the last, possibly the last year and a half to two years. We've been practicing this sacrificial giving so much so that Paul didn't want to take the bounty that we gave because he thought it was too much. We had to entreat him. Remember verse eight this, or chapter eight this morning. We had to entreat him to take it. And we show up at wealthy Corinth with these wealthy men who have plenty of money and they've not given anything. What a discouragement that would be. Jesus is really, looks really down on believers discouraging each other, especially intentionally or because of lazy practices. So Paul says here, we don't want you to discourage. We don't want our exhortation about you. We don't want our boasting about you. Again, encouragement of hope to be worthless or to be in vain because they found you, verse number four, unprepared or not ready. What a discouragement that would be. If you haven't traveled outside the United States into third world countries very much, you might not understand how blessed we really are. I mean, we are a blessed, blessed nation. When, when we go, and, and next year we'll be taking two or three mission trips, Africa, Asia, South America, um, and, and then we're going to eat our last, what, what, never mind, I'll stop with that joke. Um, but we'll go into these grocery stores in that part of the world, and there's not selections of cereal. There might be one type of cereal if there's any. There's not selections of artificial sweetener. There might be one thing of sugar. Brother Robbie, you know this to be true when you go. There's just not much there. And then when you're gone for, let's say, two or three weeks and you come back to the States, your first time in an American grocery store is, is a counterculture event. Like, I can't believe there is this much food here. Some of you have been on those trips and you can't imagine it. And you're looking at it going, I can't believe they have this much bounty in this country. That They have so much in this country. Well, well, listen, this is, I'm just saying, this is how... Uh, Macedonia would have been a very impoverished country or, or people, group of men coming to go to Jerusalem and gather the offering on the way there, coming to Corinth, a very wealthy place. And if these people who have so much are unprepared, the Apostle Paul is just simply saying it's going to be very, very, very discouraging to them. Why? Because they feel like they're all alone. They feel like these poor people are the only ones giving. 
that the wealthy Christians all over the world have no part in giving, that the giving is done simply by the poor people all over the world, which wouldn't have helped the cause of Christ at all. So Paul is writing them and says in verse number five, I thought it necessary to exhort you. The word exhort means to build you up or I'm building up the brethren rather that they would go before unto you, that they would get there before we get there and make up beforehand your bounty or your contribution or your gift, uh, your, your, your promised offering. They'd make up your bounty. Uh, whereof you had noticed before, we're telling you before that the same might be ready as a matter of bounty and not as of covetous. Here's what Paul says. When we get there, we want your giving to be a blessing. We don't want to have to kind of strong arm you into giving. Sometimes people say in San Diego, because Faith Promise Missions is like a new concept every year to about a third of our church. Every year, about one third of the people who give to Faith Promise Missions have never given anything in their life above the tithe. And, and so it, it, most of them haven't even tithed yet. And so we teach them you tithe first and then you give to Faith Promise Missions and, and they're blessed and they're encouraged. But every once in a while, the question is asked, Pastor, why do we do this? Why don't we just take a special offering when the missionary shows up? Well, because that then becomes a political issue or a matter of covetousness, like we've got to give to them as opposed to a blessing of bounty. What you saw tonight, that was, that was awesome. We're, we're taking that home. I'm going to have our church give me stuff like that every week. No, we're going to start doing something like that. We got to incorporate that. That was fantastic. But that was an issue, listen to me, of bounty. Now, I love the special offerings that we've been taking. You were prepared for those. It was rather obvious that your pastor prepared you for that. You had a culture of that. But imagine with me for a minute, if you came in totally unprepared to give, and the pastor's like, hey, we're taking a special offering. We want to give these guys some ch- some books, and so let's raise some money. Uh, who'll buy a book? Who'll buy this? Who'll buy that? And it just becomes awkward, unnecessary, and oppressive. In other words, this is a biblical principle of letting things be done Decently and in order and organized. And it's a beautiful picture of bringing things together beforehand for the grace of God. It's not some haphazard, um, keep a thumb on you kind of issue. It is rather an issue of bounty and blessing as opposed to that of difficulty fighting and covetousness. And then we see in verses 6 and following which we won't finish the the text tonight, but verses six and following, we see a sanctifying instruction for the church at Corinth. Paul says this, but this I say. Now, I don't know if you know this. You, You have a super smart pastor, so you probably do. But Hebrew writers did not have an exclamation point. In our grammar, we have exclamation points to draw attention to issues. They didn't have an exclamation point. So the way, one of the ways that they drew emphasis to a passage of scripture was to give an introductory statement with it or to use repetitive words. Like how many of you have read in the scripture, like in the gospel of John, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my words and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. And verily, verily, truly, truly. Well, why did he double state that? He's drawing emphasis to that. He's highlighting it. He's drawing arrows to that. The point of that in the language is to make sure that the people who hear it understand that this is a point that, that is in our vernacular is bolded, or this is a PowerPoint point. He does not want you to lose this idea. And when Paul says this, but this I say, he, he's doing the same thing in the grammar of the day. He is making emphasis that I want you to pay attention to what I'm about to say. And when it comes to a special offering for the church at Jerusalem, when it comes to the application of faith promise missions giving, he is saying, he would sow as sparingly, verse number six, shall reap also sparingly. He which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. Every man, as he purposeth in his heart, uh, every man according as he purposeth in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loveth a cheerful giver. We have the law of sowing and reaping. Now, in this part of the world, I don't have to spend a long time explaining sowing and reaping. But I'll take just a second. You take out a plot of land. Uh, in San Diego, it would be a garden about the size of the carpet up here. And people would be really excited. And they'd show you that. Like, oh, pastor, you've got to come see my garden. And you get there expecting something big. And this is what you would see. 
And then I come here and between Garden City, Kansas and Liberal, Kansas, there was nothing but fields upon fields upon fields of, I don't know what they grow, but it was stuff. I assume it's edible by something or someone, you know, I assume maybe, I don't know. I, I asked some guy one time, oh, is that corn? I bet that's sweet. No, that's feed corn. Right. It feeds us. No, it's for cattle. Oh, they get different corn than us. They're bigger than us. It's probably better. But whatever it is, there's this little garden that's there and you want to grow corn. If you take out you know, some corn kernels, I was going to say corn seeds, but I'm not that big of a city boy. (sighs) And you stick your finger in the ground and you drop one in the ground and you're supposed to drop three or four. I'm told never grew corn in my life. I've eaten a fair bit of it, but I've never grown corn in my life, but you drop that in the ground and you wait for it to grow. Don't be surprised when all you get is one stalk of corn. You can't come out eight months later, whenever corn is harvested and say to your wife, honey, we only got one stock. I expected row upon row upon row of corn. In California, they'd make ethanol out of it and use it to drive their cars. But honey, how come we only have one stock of corn? Well, I don't mean to be rude, sweetheart, but this is what Debbie would say. But you only like planted for one. Well, yeah, but I wanted a lot. But you didn't plant a lot. But I wanted a lot. My loving, caring wife would go, and she'd quote this verse, you sowed sparingly. You will reap sparingly. You say, why are you dealing with this? It's not like we don't know that. I know. Well, it's not like they didn't know it either. But Paul is helping them to understand and to be reminded that in the physical economy is not different than the spiritual economy with God. If you sow sparingly on the physical world, you will reap sparingly. If you, if you sow bountifully with God, you will reap bountifully. As you give, you're sowing. For the next year, you're sowing. You're sowing and you made a commitment. Keep sowing and things are going to come your way. And let me tell you, the hardest part about Faith Promise Missions giving is not simply getting started. Getting started is hard. But it's six months from now or six weeks from now or six days from now when the heater goes out in your house or the air conditioner goes out in your house or or whatever this, this big issue is or there's a major, major medical emergency and you're like, wait a minute, I made God this promise and now I've got this cost. What do I do? Could I exhort you in the name of Jesus Christ to keep sowing bountifully. Why? Because eventually you're going to reap bountifully. You'll eventually reap bountifully. Verse number seven, every man according as he purposes in his heart, so let him give. As you purpose in your heart, as you choose in your heart, as you intend in your heart, not grudgingly, the scripture says, not, not out of grief, not out of sorrow, not out of guilt, uh, not grudgingly or of necessity. Well, if I don't give, nobody else will give. No, no, not like that. How do I give? Well, you give to the Lord cheerfully. God loveth a cheerful giver. The word love is agape, means to delight in. God delights in. A hilaros is the Greek word, or it's where we get our word hilarious. A joyful, happy, glad giver. God loves people who give with a happy disposition. You say, how do you feel about giving? I love it. Sometimes I have to remind myself that I love it. Listen to me. Sometimes I have to talk myself into loving it. I have to talk myself into it. It's not my natural disposition to love giving large sums of money away. You say, well, I give, but man, I just, I got this. I got, I know, but God loves a cheerful giver and God always gives back. He would sow as sparingly shall reap sparingly. Now, this is a commitment to the faith promise offering of the church, or the not really a faith promise offering, but a special offering to the church at Jerusalem. And we're talking about stepping out by faith where God will bless that in your life. We don't give for the blessing, but we rejoice in the blessing. And as God blesses us, we're able to give more and more 
and blesses more. I love the illustration from God's hand to ours and our hand to others and God's hand to ours and our hand to others. Growing up, my dad was a pastor. He pastored in Amarillo, Texas for many years. And 25 years before that, he pastored in Washington and California and New Mexico where I was born. My dad started teaching faith promise giving, oh, oh probably mid-70s, somewhere around there. I think I was about two, three years old. I started giving to missions when I was five. So uh, that would make this year. Now, my parents gave me the money to give. And by the way, parents, that's probably a good practice for, for you to do. And I was a good practice. My parents would give me, I don't remember, I think it was five cents a week that I would give. And they would give me, and I'd put it in my little offering envelope. And I can remember being a kid, Bethel Baptist Church, Spanaway, Washington, walking into my class and giving my little missions offering. I saw those little kids in here today. And I've been, I mean, I've been giving for my whole life. And my parents have been giving ever since then. And my dad is um, personality type is kind of a plower. He, he, he doesn't get moved by much. He doesn't quit. He just keeps moving forward and moving forward. And he really has a passionate uh, desire to live for God and do his best for God. The heritage that we have is really a blessing, is it not? I mean, come on. I know not everybody has it, but you and I are blessed dudes. I'll tell you for sure. I sound like Sam Davison. I'll tell you for sure. That's my woman. Um, and so my parents... My parents give, and then my dad just comes up with weird stuff to do that nobody else would think of. And he, not too well, 20-something years ago when I was working for him, he said, you know, Chris, I heard this thing called a prove God offering. I said, I don't know what that is. I don't need to prove anything to God. He is the master of the wind. And I've always been dumb. And he was like, no, a prove God offering is anything that you get that you don't expect, you give half to God. He goes, what do you think about that? I'm like, okay. He goes, I'm going to do that for the rest of my life. I'm like, right on. Well, they started doing that. So my dad, who grew up poor, never walked past, a, past any money that he wouldn't pick up. If somebody dropped a penny on the ground, he'd pick it up. And he'd talk about why society is bad. Because kids today are throwing pennies around and this world's built on pennies and dollars start with cents. And you, you have a penny, you'll eventually have a nickel. You have a nickel, you'll have a dollar. You have a dollar, you have $10. You have $10, you'll have a billion. Wow, that's a big jump. And so he started giving Prove God offerings. Anything that would come in, he'd give half. I'm not recommending it. I'm just saying that was what my dad did. I'm not preaching that you should. I'm just saying that's what my dad did. And he'd give half and he'd give half. Well, the older my parents got, I started thinking about their retirement. You said, why? Because I love my parents for four days. <laughs> Day number four, they got to go. And they don't want to live with my brother. He's crazy. He lives in Miami and his wife's Cuban, which means she and my mom would fight all the time eventually. You say, really? It's a family joke, but it's really probably true. Uh, my sister, my sister married a guy 16 years older than her. My brother-in-law is one year younger than my mom. And it would be creepy to, for my brother-in-law and my mom to be in the house because people would think they're married. So that's just awkward. <laughs> so they can't live with them because somebody might think my brother-in-law is hitting on his mother-in-law. And boy, there goes the neighborhood. So... So I deduced rather quickly that the only person in the family that they get to live with is me. So I started asking my dad. I'm like, yo, pops, I got a question for you. How's your retirement? And my dad, typical guy from Borger, Texas, looks right at me and said, I don't think that's any of your business. And I looked right at him and I said, well, then you ain't living with me. He said, okay, let's talk. So we started talking back and forth. He said, God's got it under control. I said, I know that, but I'd like to know where and how. Well, I'm going to make a long story short. About seven years ago, a lady in their church died. She didn't have any family. She was my mom's best friend. Her name was Gloria Gray. Godly lady, loved our daughters, loved us. Godly lady. And when Gloria died, she made my mom the executor of her, her estate. So about three or four days after she died, the Gloria's attorney called my mom and said, uh, Mrs. Chadwick, I need to meet with you to go over the affairs of the estate. My mom said, sure, when do you want to meet? They said, by the time my mom goes down. My mom's a very nervous German lady. And um, my mom meets with the attorney. She was there by herself. And the attorney goes, now we need to figure out what you want to do with the funds. And my mom said, well, whatever Gloria wanted to do with the funds, that's what I want to do with the funds. 
And so the attorney looked at my mom kind of weirdly and, and said, well, where do you want the funds distributed and deposited? And my mom said, I don't know. Where did Gloria want the funds distributed and deposited? And this goes on for about 15 or 20 minutes. And the attorney goes, well, wherever you want them. And my mom goes, I'm just the executor of the estate. She had wishes as to where her stuff would go. I just don't know. She told me she, would, she never would tell me where they were going. And the attorney goes, you don't know where the funds are going? My mom goes, no, I don't know where anything's going. All I know is that you and I are supposed to work to distribute them where they're supposed to go. And I'm going to get paid a little bit to help her with that. And so that'll be a proved God offering. And I'll give half of it to Jesus and whatever. And I'm just thinking like, come on, stop proving God. He proved himself on the cross of Calvary for the sin of mankind. Just sit down and take the money, mom. <laughs> Since bringing good theology into your Baptist world. Come on, Arlene. And the attorney looked at my mom and he goes... Miss Chadwick, I don't think you understand. My mom goes, no, I don't understand. And the attorney goes, "Uh, Gloria left everything to you. And again, my mom's not slow, but she's airheaded. She goes, yeah, she left it for me to distribute. And he goes, no, no, she she left it all to you and your husband. My mom goes, right. And my mom has a tendency, she's German, and, and I don't know if any of the rest of you in here are German, but if you're German, I pray for you, because I am too, and my mom's ready to fight at the drop of a hat. You irritate her, she has a line, and you don't know where it is, and if you irritate her, she'll knock you out, man. That woman, she hit harder than my dad. Like, we have, family, we have a family reunion next month, and we'll vote on who gave the harder spankings. We will all vote, my mom, and my dad will get mad, and then we're like, oh, we're just kidding, dad, it was really you. He'll go, I knew it was, I knew it was. It wasn't even close to my, my dad felt like he was whipping us with an elastic belt. And, and so my mom's getting really ticked off at this attorney. And the attorney finally goes, Mrs. Chadwick, all of the money in Gloria's estate is for Gerald and Arlene Chadwick. What bank account do I deposit the monies to? My mom's like, uh, 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 let me check with my husband. And he goes, okay. He goes, uh, by the way, you get her house, you get her car, you get her stock options, you get her 401ks, you get all of her monies. She's got some land that's yours too. Everything needs to be transferred into your name. And my mom was like, is this, she wasn't wearing glasses. She's like, wow. 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 She just kept doing that. Wow. She called my, my dad. My dad like has a revival. He goes, I marked off a spot on the floor and just had a fit. I said, well, when I did that as a kid, I got a spanking, but I hope Jesus is happy with you. In that one gift, that one gift, listen to what I'm about to say. Probably three to four times the amount they had given to Faith Promise Missions over almost 50 years was given back to them. You say, what'd they do with it? Well, it was unexpected. So they gave 50% to Jesus. At which time I begged my dad to join Canyon Ridge Baptist Church. (laughs) Please join our church. Just for a couple of weeks, dad. Just for a couple of weeks. Nothing doing. Nothing doing. He was too ethical or whatever. I don't know. Or stuck in the mud. Today, my parents live in a house they paid for in cash in the nice side of Amarillo. They drive cars that are paid for, that are very, very nice new model cars. My dad preaches now in small, normally small, struggling churches and helps them to learn how to evangelize and reach out into their community and how to live by faith and all of that. Where did that all start? 50-something years ago, giving, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loved a cheerful giver. And you reap what you sow. You say, well, I wish that would happen to me. Well, nobody, no two stories are the same. No two stories are the same. But I will tell you this, you can't outgive God. 
I can't tell you all the struggles that my parents have went through and all the ministry difficulties my parents have went through. Uh, Time would not allow for that. But I will tell you this. God is always, always good. And I just wonder tonight, maybe you put something on a card and you did like so many people do. You kind of made an agreement with God. As opposed to stepping out by faith with God. This year, our church pastor gave me the biggest raise they've ever given. I think I told you the story of Clark coming to our church and us firing the trustees. Um, never mind, that was an inside joke. I shouldn't have told it. And it's not true at all. Uh, our trustees talked to Clark Bozier, a pastor friend, and he helped them live by faith. And they gave me the biggest raise that they had ever given us. Biggest raise they'd ever given us by far. I mean, it's huge. And when Faith Promise Missions Commitment came, because they gave it to us in January, and Faith Promise Commitment, our church is in February, God started working on my heart how much to give. And this is what I started doing. Okay, Lord, if I give that, that means this much per year. And Lord, really? That much? You want me to give that much per year? So I told Debbie... And Debbie and I started talking and we started going back and forth. And, and boy, she's always a supporter. I could have said, God wants us to give $3,000 a day. And she'd have been, amen. I don't know how God will do it. We'll die starving, but let's try. I mean, it's just her spirit and she has a gift of giving. I have the gift of spending. And I began to argue with God a little bit, not negatively, but God, you want me to give that? There's no way we could give that. And then I went from there's no way we could give that to God, whatever you want, that's what I'll do. Just make it clear. And as faith promise missions commitment came, that amount that is so far beyond our capacity to give, I wrote that number down on that card and I handed that card in. And can I tell you, it was the greatest day of my year to give. And I'm telling you, when God tells you what to do and you're obedient and you step out by faith, it's the greatest thing you could ever do. The greatest thing. Don't give halfway. Don't give 90%. Don't give for six months. Jump all in. Jesus is a good God and he wants to take care of you. And he don't give grudgingly or of necessity. God loves a cheerful giver. God loves people surrendered to him. Verse number 13 of our text and we're done. Whilst by the experiment of this ministration, they glorify God for your professed subjection unto the gospel of Christ and your liberal distribution unto them and to all men. You see what it all comes back to? You know, giving is always tied to the gospel. They see the church at Jerusalem sees What you've done and they glorify God for your professed subjection into the gospel. They they know that you're acting like a Christian. It's a testimony. It points it back to Christ and your liberal distribution, your liberal, generous giving to them and to all men. And by their prayer for you, which long after you for the exceeding grace of God in you. Let me just stop and say this to the missionaries here. You need to teach your church members to be very thankful for the Americans who are sacrificing so that you can get to a foreign field. Yeah, it's it's a two-way street. And they're excited about it because of the gospel of Jesus Christ and your liberal distribution. Your pastor calls it radical giving or radical generosity. That's a wonderful place to be. And why can you do that? Because you first gave your own self to the Lord. In March of 2003, Pastor Roger Spradlin of the Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, received a letter from a lady named Karen Watson. Karen was a missionary in Iraq. She was working through a Baptist international aid organization. And she was single and resolved to obey God. However, he called her, worked in the medical field and She wrote a letter, and the letter was dated March 7th, 2003. Let me read it. Dear Pastor Phil and Roger, very large church, two pastors, and she said, 
You should only be opening this letter in the event of my death. She was a humanitarian aid worker in Iraq, and she died with being ambushed March 15th, along with a couple other aid workers as well. These were her words. When God calls, there are no regrets. I tried to share my heart with you as much as possible. My heart for the nations. I wasn't called to a place. I was called to him. To obey him was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory was my reward. His glory was my reward. A lady who died. One of the most important things to remember right now is to preserve the work. I am writing this as if I am still working among my people group. I thank you all for your prayers and support. Surely your reward in heaven will be great. Thank you for investing in my life and spiritual well-being. Keep sending missionaries out. Keep raising up fine young pastors. In regards to any service for me, any funeral service, keep it small and simple. Yes, simple. Just preach the gospel. Be bold and preach the life-saving, life-changing, forever eternal gospel. Give glory and honor to our Father. She then said this. The missionary heart cares more than some think is wise. Risk more than some think is safe. Dream more than some think is practical. Expect more than some think is possible. I was called not to comfort or success, but to obedience. And she closes with this. Pastor, there is no joy outside of knowing Jesus and serving him. Church... There is no joy outside of knowing Jesus and serving him. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that? Because if you do, it will transform the way that you give. And it will transform why you give. There is no joy outside of Jesus and serving him. We've had a great day. But we need to have a great year of surrender and obedience to the Lord. I love that phrase in here. His to obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory is my reward. His glory is my reward. It's okay to suffer for Jesus. It's okay to give it all up. For the cause of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying he's calling you. Or anyone else in this room to do that. But you ought to be open to it. Some of you that are younger. Maybe you would say you know what. I'm a single young man. I'm just going to go to some really difficult part of the world. And give my life for the cause of Jesus Christ. Don't you want to be married? Oh, I'd love that. But God's called me to do this. Why is it. Karen, the single missionary. Why don't we have some guys saying, I'll go to that people group. I'll go to that nation. I'll surrender all and follow him. I'll give all for the cause of Christ. I'll go to a state like California and start a church. I'll go to a place like like Colombia and try to get into Venezuela to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've lost our risk-taking in most churches. We play everything really, really safe. We want to be really, really comfortable. We believe in the sovereign power and protection of God. We believe in preaching the gospel boldly. But do we really? Our prayer is tonight that we really will. And that we'll allow God to work in our hearts. And days and weeks and months and years and decades from now, we'll look back on this week and this service and and we'll go, God began to light a fire in my soul that week. I saw missionaries, I saw preachers, I saw our pastor. And I just thought, if God could use them, God might be doing something in me. And would to God, everybody would just say, I'm willing to sacrifice, I'm willing to suffer for the glory of God because that is my reward. Father, bless our time.